They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Thank you, Lizzie. Okay, well... Thank you for having me this morning. Sorry for the shaky start. Um, it really is an honor and a privilege to be asked to talk to you. Uh, so many wise and learned people. I, I hope that what I bring is, is worthy of, uh, of your consideration. Last month, we heard uh, Graham Dunn introduce ACTS as being like a TV box set, a bit like a TV box set. I'm currently, uh, along with my wife, enjoying the rather childish humour of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Anyone, any Brooklyn Nine-Nine? I can see one nodding, a couple of no nodding, smiling faces, okay. But I, I figure the second service is maybe the target audience for that one. But my, my favourite by far is, of course, the West Wing. Any West Wing fans? Yes? Okay, many more. It is such a wonderful piece of television, I can't recommend it highly enough. And our friend from church, Anna, lent us this. And I distinctly remember sitting in our flat with my wife the night that I watched the first episode, because I got to the end of the episode and I thought, huh, I don't really think I have a clue what's going on here, and I'm not really sure that I'm enjoying this, but we may as well watch the second episode, because it's not time to go to bed yet. And by the end of the second episode, we then binge-watched all seven series twice. And I'd do it again in a heartbeat. Um, and Acts really is like that. It's got this drama, it's got action, it's got rich character development, and it's got wonderful narrative. So, previously on Acts of the Apostles, we've had all this doubt, excitement, tension, and drama. Jesus ascending into heaven right before the, the uh, disciples' eyes. Then the waiting. The Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost like fire and a rushing wind. Mystical power to speak other languages, a rousing and provocative sermon, and then 3,000 converts in one day. <gasps> wow, what next? Well, quick, get the next episode on Netflix, get it loaded, and then... <laughs> we hear beautiful music in the background. The flutes and oboes of Grieg's morning. The haze clears. And Luke paints a picture of an idyllic community. All is well. Wait, what? That's a bit weird, isn't it, when you think about it? If you look at the passage that came before it and the passage that comes after it, this feels like a bit of an aside, like a break from the action. I mean, in two chapters' time, Peter and John get arrested. The chapter after that, two of their own fellowship drop dead. And then two more chapters, and we have the first Christian martyr in history. So we know that the title of the box set is The Acts of the Apostles, or The Acts of the Apostles, if you want. Well, 
Luke, and, and Tom Wright notes that Luke's quite clear. He wants us to read this as if it's a book about the Acts of Jesus. Effectively, Tom, uh, Luke thinks this is the Acts of Jesus, volume 2. So where's Jesus in this passage? And why has this passage been included in what is a very selective highlights reel of the early church? What made the director of the TV drama, Luke, choose to focus an entire episode on this little narrative? It's uh, one of my favorite passages of the Bible, actually. And, and the reason I love it so much, and I come back to it again and again, is because it gives us a wonderful glimpse of what a healthy church should look like, should be like. God's present with his people in a really powerful way. And that creates brotherly and sisterly bonds that transcend race, gender, and social status. And everyone's happy. And the, Though I turn to this passage again and again when I want to think of how we should model church and when I want to think about how we should model our connect groups, I know I shouldn't get carried away with myself. Again, Graham Dunn a few weeks ago wisely pointed out that Acts isn't uh, a perfect template for a 21st century church. And I've, I've pondered on that as I've prepared this, and I think there are three key mistakes that we can make with this passage if we're not careful. So we're going to take a quick look at those mistakes then we're going to focus on how we should behave as a church. So without further ado, mistake number one, I think, is to consider this as if it were a honeymoon period. It's been called that, the honeymoon period of the early church. But that, to me, suggests that it's something that isn't very relevant to us or that it can't be repeated today. I don't think that's what's going on here. What we see here is the fruit of the Spirit in action. We see Spirit-filled believers having every aspect of their lives transformed living as a strong community, supporting and encouraging one another, and the church should absolutely model that today. But this can very quickly lead into the second mistake, because you, you start to think, well, hang on, is Luke outlining a bit of a Marxist manifesto for Christian living? Oh no, I've got to sell everything I own and give it away. Is that what this passage says? No, absolutely not. That's not the truth. These were love gifts, they were gladly and willingly given for the benefit of all. It's not a sin to own possessions. It's not a sin to have and to spend money. There's absolutely no compulsion to give to the church. And we read about this later in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They're the ones who dropped dead, by the way. Oh, spoiler alert, sorry. Um, if anyone hasn't seen this box set before, you'll be cross with me in a few weeks' time. Um, I believe we need to read this passage in the context of at least two other passages in the New Testament Firstly, in 2 Corinthians, chapters 8 and 9, Paul quite clearly outlines that our giving shouldn't be such that it makes life really easy for others and really hard for ourselves. We are, it is a sacrifice to give. It's always harder to give money away than it is to spend it on ourselves. So it is a sacrifice. But very few people are called to a life of voluntary poverty. We are to give what we want to give, gladly and without any pressure. However, in 1 John 3, John calls us out. If we've got money and we've got possessions and we see our brothers and sisters in need and we don't do anything, he calls us out and says, that's not right. And we know. So we know that we don't have to give anything at all. But on the other hand, faith without love is nothing. And faith without good deeds is dead. Or if James were one of my Geordie friends from back home, he'd say, faith without good deeds is deed. Sorry, it's a bad joke. I just couldn't resist it. <laughs> when we are filled with the Spirit, 
The Spirit gives us the capacity to love and the desire to be generous. We then pour out that love in meeting the needs of our Christian brothers and sisters day by day. So it's about using what we've been given to help the people in front of us. And in this way, all of these passages hold together in harmony. So, I don't believe this passage is a momentary aside for one minute. It's no calm before the storm. I think Luke is very deliberately putting this in here to show us just how much the Holy Spirit has transformed everything. It's not all boldness, miraculous signs, and uh, powerful speeches. Here we see the Spirit has forged a bond of peace and a fellowship between the believers, and it changes the whole outlook on one another. It changes their outlook on their possessions and their wealth and on how they spend their time. So let's take a closer look at how their behavior changed. Now the passage says that they devoted themselves to four things. The apostles' <coughs> teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Well, the first one, the apostles' teaching, that was primarily how they learned about Jesus and Christianity. For us today, that means the Bible, but more specifically, the apostles' teaching is condensed into the New Testament. And John Stott remarks that if we're to be a healthy, spirit-filled church, we must be a learning church. He says, we must study and submit to New Testament instruction. The Spirit of God leads the people of God to submit to the Word of God. So they devoted themselves to the fellowship. That's the second thing. And I prefer the ESV translation here because they didn't devote themselves to fellowship. It wasn't about a nice, cozy feeling. It's they devoted themselves to the fellowship. Literally, that means they devoted themselves to one another. And the Greek word for fellowship here is koinonia, which quite literally means partnership or participation. They devoted themselves to partnership and participation with one another. So a healthy, spirit-filled church has to be a loving church. More about that later. The third one, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, and that probably includes both the Lord's Supper, so a shared communion service, as well as sharing meals together in each other's homes. Uh, in fact, the communion service would most likely have been part of a larger meal. And prayer here, they devote themselves to prayer. That's more than just private prayer. It's, in, it's literally, they devote themselves to the prayers. So that suggests to me corporate prayer meetings. So a healthy, spirit-filled church must be a worshipping church. And I love what we see in verse 46. In verse 46, we see that the disciples did this both in the temple courts and in their homes. It says it's really important to have more formal worship services like we're having this morning in church. But also, there's a very important place for more informal and spontaneous worship and meetings together. We need to have both. But before we go any further, I want to consider what this word devoted really means. I've put the Collins Dictionary definition up there. To devote yourself to something means to spend all or most of your time or energy on it. I don't know about you, but that immediately raises questions for me. Because I like to be in control of my time. I like to be in control of my energy. Uh, I also love being involved in things. If you know anything about me at all, you'll know that I'm up for anything going. I spread myself really thin. I get involved in everything. Uh, and my life's very hectic. So can I pare my life down so that I can truly devote myself to these four things, and if I can't, where does that leave me? 
Ah, aha, John, yes, but first century Palestine didn't exactly have WhatsApp and email, did it? You know, they didn't have to try and watch Wimbledon, the Tour de France, the cricket, and the Formula One, all at the same time, while simultaneously trying to help your wife to put the kids to bed and answering emails from the, your boss on your smartphone, did they? Hey? Well, no. No, they didn't. But um, it doesn't really matter. We, we've got to find a way to get over ourselves, me particularly, and, and get, get past our distractions. I put my time into many things, my energy into many things, but few things are needed. Indeed, only one. This isn't about self-denial. It's not about saying, I can't do. It's not about going back to monastic living and sort of denying ourselves everything. This is about priorities. The believers in Acts didn't just sit around doing nothing. They still had to go to work. They still had to cook, clean the house, and things were pretty hard back then. Jesus spoke the truth to Martha when he said few things are needed, indeed only one. And the church here in Acts, they got it. They were filled with the Spirit, and they got it. Now, I know you're all desperate for me to reveal the third mistake. Uh, get on with it, John, they say. Well, here it is. We might think from this passage that we are only to focus on four things as a church. We would only focus on teaching, fellowship, worship, and prayer. But let's take a quick look at the effects that this behavioral transformation had in the church. So we read that, or literally fear came upon every one of them. Many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. They increased in generosity, and no one was in need. They were full of joy, especially when they ate together. They praised God, and get this, people liked them. That means people outside the fellowship, outside the congregation, that unbelievers, they loved them. They thought they were great. And those same people were being saved every single day. So they can't have been just sat inside a room focused on themselves. They can't have been inwardly focused. It doesn't stand to reason. So it's not that we focus on these things to the exclusion of all else. Yes, we're devoted to them, but in a way that is visible to others. We talk about our faith and the blessings and encouragements we've received from our fellowship with people outside of church. Just as naturally as if we're talking about the rugby scores or the football scores or, I don't know, Strictly Come Dancing, if that's your thing. You know, we, we're not scared to be Christians in front of other people, to, to talk, you know, to pray for each other in a pub, that kind of thing. It's about being visible to other people. And so a healthy church has to be a witnessing church as well. The church in Acts had had a foretaste of the joy to come in everlasting life. And everyone who's around the believers can see it. It's infectious. They want it. And that tells me the gospel of Jesus always has to be good news to people. So what does it mean for Breton Baptist Church? Well, the church in Acts, if you take the numbers quite literally, had just grown by exactly... 2,600% in one day. It was exactly 26 times larger all of a sudden. Now, we know that a lot of those converts had come a long way from distant lands, and a lot of them would have gone home. So we don't really know how big the church was at this point, but I'm pretty sure it was more mega church than parish church. How would we cope with that? Well, we'd put an organization structure in place, I think. We'd maybe hire some administrators. Uh, we'd put in a... a, 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 a hierarchy of leadership and governance. That's not bad. In fact, we'll learn that's exactly what they did in Acts. But we must tread carefully, and I love this quote from Mike Pilavacci. He says that many business principles aren't bad principles, but the church is meant to be a family, 
not a business. In a business, you hire and fire employees. In a family, you raise up <coughs> sons and daughters. In a business, the focus is on the structure, and I would add, on the performance, whereas in a family, the focus is on the people and the relationships. We've got to do this together as a family because no one else is going to do it. We can't recruit people to develop fellowship for us. We can't expect our new minister to come in and then, boom, all of a sudden we have a new culture. It doesn't work like that. Jesus didn't leave us with a business model or a five-step plan for success. He left us with a blueprint for a beautiful but broken family, woven together in love and sharing unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. We, brothers and sisters, are church. We're God's plan A for the world. There isn't a plan B. The church is it in Christ. And the early church learned how to be church as they went along. And so can we. No church will ever have the perfect ministry, whether that's worship, outreach, uh, teaching or discipleship. And, and I think I need to hear this this morning. Um, that's okay. Perhaps that's okay that no church will ever have perfect ministry. It's more important to answer the command of Jesus to love one another and then to get on with it in whatever way we can. We can work on improving as we go. Don't get me wrong, we really need organization and our staff members, the minister, the caretaker, the office manager, the children's worker, the youth pastor, the pastoral worker. They are gifted and anointed in their roles. And they're a huge blessing to the church. We need them in order to be the best church that we can be. But it doesn't give us a license to be complacent. And we mustn't over-rely on our staff members and leaders. Okay, there's a frustratingly common occurrence in our household at the moment. It goes a little bit like this. Mommy! Daddy! That's our four-year-old daughter shouting from the other room. What is it, dear? We call. I knocked my cup over. Ah! Well, pick it up then. Now, you see, we know that she's four. We know that she can't, um, she doesn't have the capability yet to clean up a spill to scrub the carpet and make it all good. But she absolutely has the ability to step in and maybe pick the cup up and stem the flow a little bit to contain the situation until we can get in and support her. We're trying to teach our children at the moment, and it feels like a fool, fool's errand, let me tell you, but we're trying to teach them that if you see a need, if you see something wrong, you can try and fix it. You don't just come and tell us, see a need, meet a need. See a need, meet a need. I think as a church, sometimes we fall into the trap of seeing a need, then telling a leadership or staff team member about it, and then expecting somehow that it's magically resolved. Brian mentioned that this was a book of acts, not a book of thoughts. I like that phrase. We're called to get on with it. And I'm not suggesting we all go off and do our own thing and never talk to the leadership or the staff team about it. I mean, I reckon we should whitewash the walls. Genuinely, I think we should paint them white. But I'm not going to turn up unannounced with a tin of paint one day and just start doing it. That's not what I'm saying here. What I am saying is that we need to be proactive about meeting needs within the church family. And one thing that can help with this is to cultivate an entrepreneurial mindset. 
well, sorry, that's a, that's a sentence full of buzzwords straight from my workplace. But there's a truism that goes alongside it. Think big, start small, act fast. You may have heard it before. I've heard it so much that it's become completely cliched. But it is genuinely true, and it does apply here. You see, if you're sitting at home or in church or wherever you are thinking, oh, this is so frustrating. I wish the church would do something about this. Then God is prompting the church to do something about it. He's prompting you. See a need, meet a need. Think big, start small, act fast. We're called to see visions, to dream dreams, to seek for God's heart and his glorious kingdom here on earth. Only we're stuck in a church that doesn't quite get our vision, and uh, there are jobs to do and bills to pay, and the leadership team's too busy, and the pastoral work is on holiday, and before we know it, we've told ourselves it can't be done. It's impossible. Or perhaps... We get so hung up, especially if you're me, we get so hung up about it all being perfect from the start that we never get started. Let me tell you, nothing is impossible with God. He's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. So keep that big goal, that dream in mind, that, that lofty ideal, that vision, keep that in mind. Test it to see if it aligns with our church vision. But then focus on taking a small step towards it. Talk about it in your connect group. Pray into it with some wise Christian friends. Think about how you, what you could practically achieve now. How could I start? And then do it. God will bless humble beginnings if they're in step with his heart. Oh, and then do tell the leadership team or the staff team about it so that we can keep up and we can bless and build on the foundations that you're laying. Now, last Sunday evening, I was in the car, and I was driving to collect a Chinese takeaway. Guilty pleasure. Don't tell the kids about it, because this was after they'd gone to bed. And I, um, I called out to God as I was driving. And I, I, wanted, I, wanted, I said, what is it that you want me to bring this morning? What is it that you want me to say? I felt like I'd been progressing through the passage well. I'd kind of put a decent talk together. But I wanted it to be God's message, not mine. And after a while, I believe he said... Call my people together. And I immediately remembered what he'd said to me as I, as I was praying and fasting on the morning of our special church meeting. He said, I love it. I take joy when you all gather together, when you all pull together and serve me. So I believe God is calling Breton Baptist Church to a whole new level of togetherness. The funny thing was, I went home, we enjoyed our Chinese takeaway, and then I carried on working through, my, uh, working through my sermon right where I'd left off, just, just continuing through the motions. And then all of a sudden I stopped. I just felt this urge to read the passage again. And that, that was a bit odd because I knew full well what the passage said. I've been through it so many times. And I started to look it up online. And then I thought, you idiot, John, your study Bible's right there. Pick up the physical book and look it up. And it hit me right between the eyes. You see, the reason I brought my big Bible is not so that I look really holy. It's because it just happened to be the Bible I was reading. And this Bible splits verse 44 across a page. So as I read it, verse 44 says this. And all who believed were together. Oh, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions. I think, too often, we focus so much on the having all things in common part and selling possessions part, that we forget about the being together part. And how can you get to those second parts if you haven't 
done a good job with the first part. Let's go back to that cartoon of happy stick people again. We are called to have joy and gladness of heart, but not delusion from the reality of life. Paul in Philippians 4 says that he's learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Peace and contentment in all circumstances is very real, and it's a gift from Christ through the Holy Spirit, but we have to learn it. We have to practice it. How do we learn things? By copying others. How can we copy others if we're not together and connected with mature believers that we can imitate? When we're together, we can experience fellowship. We bear one another's burdens. We encourage, build each other up. We inspire one another. We pray for one another. And the Spirit's presence in the church increases. Quite simply, we are better together. Someone told me recently that they feel, in this church, they feel unconnected and in the dark. How can I pray for people if, if no one tells me what's going on? I, I feel that too. I understand that. I, I do know exactly how they feel. But I don't think the answer is more efficient communication. We can't worry too much about trying to get to know everyone in this church. It's too big. And if it grows further, which I sincerely pray and hope that it does, it'll just the problem will expand. No matter how good our prayer tree is, you're not all going to know what my family's struggling with right now. But my brothers and sisters in our connect group, they know. They're praying for us. And there are one or two in this fellowship who know almost everything that's on my heart. The answer is to get together more. To, to, to join connect groups, to serve on ministry teams together, to meet informally, to meet at work, to meet on the streets, to meet in coffee shops, to be together more often, to share meals more often. And I thought I'd be completely honest with you at this point and admit that Becky and I really struggle to invite people around for meals. I can't believe I'm about to do this. Uh, and I do have Becky's permission, but she was aghast at the concept of it. But as I was preparing this talk, I took a photograph of our dining room the way it actually is. I figured you probably can't see it anyway because of our aging projector bulb, but maybe there's too much detail. Uh, look what we've got here. We've been in this extension three years and I still haven't put a curtain rail up. We've got shoes on the radiator drying out because it was a rainy day. Look, more shoes over here. There's, uh, there's kids' games and art stuff stacked on the table and frankly on every other available surface in the house. And then the worst of it, shameful chocolates right there on display in the middle of the table that I was munching as I was preparing the talk. And I'm making light of this, and actually that's probably the tidiest room in the house. It doesn't look too bad. But actually, the reason we didn't want to do this, it was really uncomfortable because we're ashamed of it. I'm ashamed of it. I don't want you to see this and think less of us. And that is a barrier to us inviting you round. And then I get a bit precious about having to cook an amazing meal. And it's not because I want to show off, genuinely. It's because I love loving people, and, and, I want to, and I like cooking, and I want to be able to do that really well, so I want you to have an amazing culinary experience when you come round to my house. And that puts a barrier in the way of me inviting you round. But how many of you would come round anyway, even if it's a total mess and I'm just cooking fish fingers, would you come round just to enjoy fellowship with the Calcrafts? Yeah, I thought you would. God, God, I had two responses planned to that, and the other one was going to be, I have to leave the church now. 
Um, so I'm glad you all put your hands up. What if it's just toast? What if it's cornflakes and toast? You know what? What's more important is that we eat together and share fellowship. You see, food is ministry. At least half of Jesus' ministry involved food. We need to eat together. And if I'm worried about you seeing my home the way it really is, that's not doing life together. That's not family. Family gets to live in the home, gets to see the home, warts and all. And if I'm keeping you at arm's length from that, I'm putting up appearances. I'm ashamed to admit it, but that's what I'm doing. And here's the biggest problem yet. If I'm too ashamed to let you see my messy house, how can I ever get to the point where you can see my messy life, my messy heart? How could I ever get to the point? How would I ever be able to share with you my deepest struggles, my doubts, my sin, and my failure? Satan accuses us. He accuses me, saying, look how messy your house is. They'll think you're a failure. If they knew what went on in your head, what you really thought sometimes, they'd want nothing to do with you. That's what we're up against. He wants to keep our barriers up. He wants to keep our guard up. And we've got to find ways to break those down. We've got to, have, we've got to find a way to break down our barriers and to build a church where it's okay to not be okay. Where we can let down our masks, where it's safe to be honest with one another and know that we can admit to struggling, we can admit to uh, our failures without fear of condemnation or judgment. Do you have any idea how powerful it is, how liberating it is to confess your sins to someone else and realize you weren't alone after all and that you can work on getting better together? Wouldn't you like to get to that point where you had a couple of friendships in the church that were so close you could share anything, anything with them and know that you'd be loved and supported? I know it's possible because I have a couple of friendships. I have a couple of friends who know me that well. But confessing my guilt and my shame, my secrets to them for the very first time, that was one of the hardest and most vulnerable things I've ever done in my life. But the release that came from it, the mutual understanding, the support that came from sharing my burdens was immense. We've got to break through these barriers together because they don't fall down very easily on their own. But in order to do that, and I know that's a huge step, the first step is to be together. I can't promise that you'll be deliriously happy in this beautiful but broken family. But there are people in this church who inspire me, who motivate me, who help me to grow. And there are people I can turn to when it all gets too much. It's easier together. It's less painful together. It's more fun together. Quite simply, we are better when we're together and we're called to it. Church, in this new season, let's devote ourselves to being together. I'm going to ask the band to come back on stage now. And 